The Sewers of Paris is made possible by listeners like you. Visit sewersofparis.com and click support the show on Patreon to join the folks who make the podcast possible. Hello and welcome to The Sewers of Paris. The topic this week is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. My guest this week had to figure out a lot on his own. After dropping out of high school and moving across the country at the age of 15, Gus Lanza had no idea how to finish school, how to find a career, or what he was meant to do in life. Figuring that stuff out involved a lot of listening to himself, and also finding others who could help him along the way. As time passed, a unique chosen family grew around him, from childhood friends, to neighbors, to his partner, a performer many of us would come to know as drag star Ben De La Creme. And it wasn't until a few years ago that Gus finally realized that the path ahead had been staring him right in the face. We'll have that conversation in a minute. First, a reminder that The Sewers of Paris is on Twitter and Facebook. I post clips of the stuff that we talk about on each episode. Also, I hope you'll join me for our next fun-friendly live stream on December 28th. It's a laid-back brunchtime chat about the books and movies and music and shows that are bringing you joy right now. There's a link at the top of The Sewers of Paris Twitter feed. And by the way, if you like LGBTQ podcasting, you may enjoy my other show, Queens of Adventure, a comedy adventure show that features drag queens playing Dungeons and Dragons. That's at queensofadventure.com. Now, here's Gus. Well, this week I'm speaking with Gus Lanza, personal trainer and assistant and sidekick and partner of Ben De La Creme. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So what is the entertainment that changed your life? It's it's kind of an interesting mix. I was raised by my uh, dad's parents. So um, they were born in 19... My grandfather was born in like 19, I think, 25. And my grandmother was born in 1928. So I was brought up on a lot of, um, and we're Italian, so I was brought up on a lot of opera and a lot of symphonies, um, orchestral music. I was brought up on a lot of um, musicals, so mm-hmm. um, Rodgers and Hammerstein <laughs> musicals, um, which I loved when I was a kid. And then my dad was born in the late 50s and was very much into like classic rock. Um, so I, you know, music was always like sort of the biggest media consumption in our house growing up. It sounds like a real emphasis on like classics. Yeah, yeah. I, I still struggle with like finding things that are coming out, you know, now that I am drawn to or interested in or I mean... musically like there's tons of other media like i'm obsessed with binging tv like everyone else but um but yeah music is i still have a hard time like finding bands that excite me or um things that i really feel drawn to Mm -hmm. and then the things that i typically am drawn to definitely harken back to you know elements that were maybe more prominent in the 40s 50s 60s a little bit of 70s um, mm. as well. Yeah. So when you were growing up, did you feel like a, a little tiny old person? <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> amongst other kids. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. I actually did a, um, it's so funny. I actually did a book report or like a re- research paper report as, as researchy as you can get in the third grade. Um, but in third grade, I did a report on this jazz musician named Fats Waller. And I believe he was, um, I believe he was a pianist and a singer and um, was an African-American man. 
And yeah, everyone else in my class was like, who the hell is this? What are you even talking about? But I was like obsessed with him and would like sing all of his songs. And my grandfather and I would like listen to his records. And yeah, so I, I definitely like only really hung out with like old people when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I was friends with my teachers and, you know, my birthday parties consisted of my grandparents and their best friends who were all in their late sixties, you know? Yeah. So you had, you said um, you were raised by, by grandparents basically. So <laughs> yeah, did you feel like yeah. out of time amongst other kids? Oh, always. Yeah. I never had friends my age until I was actually 30. And then I started realizing, oh yeah, like other people who are 30 are not so terrible. But when I was in my twenties, I struggled really to like connect with people that were, um, within five years of my age, probably. Yeah. Well, tell me about, like, you mentioned there was opera, there was musical theater, um, there was, uh, like, it sounds like there was, like, a lot of, like, classic film in there as well. So yeah. what are the, were there pieces that you were just, like, obsessed with or, like, would keep going back to? Yeah, I was really into, um, I was really into Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and I was really into the sound of music when I was a kid, like those two movies, I think I watched a million times. Um, like I knew all the songs I, you know, would rewind and go back to my favorite parts. Um, I really liked damn Yankees a lot too. Anything that had a lot of dancing and like Technicolor, I was really into. Oh, sure, the spectacles. The spectacle. Oh, and uh, and uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or Willy, Willy Wonka was the original with Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. I always get the two confused. The more recent one is atrocious, and I actually couldn't finish watching it. But yeah, the original one with Gene Wilder, uh, I know that one by heart. And I actually used to get in trouble. I would like recite it along with the movie playing and would <laughs> would be told, like, we're going to turn this off if you don't stop doing that. So you're just supposed to watch it. I like that you were basically like anticipating uh, like the existence of uh, more participatory stuff. Like, I don't know, like Rocky Horror Picture Show screenings or something. Oh, supposed totally. To shout at the screen. Yeah, totally. And actually, I didn't even see Rocky Horror until I was probably like, I don't know, like I was living in Austin. I think I was like maybe 15, 16. I think the first time I saw Rocky Horror mm-hmm. um, and they actually used to do it at a theater. They would do it like a midnight showing at a theater. And I went a couple of times to that. But one thing I do really avoid, and to this day, I always tell Ben, like, you're sitting on the aisle when we go to see a new show or something, um, is audience participation. So the Rocky Horror thing, I like watching it as a movie at home. I do not Mm -hmm. like going to a theater and seeing it, Um, even though it's like, that's like audience participation light, but still, that's too much for me. Like the the rules and the making of noise and stuff like that? Yeah, like you have to like, yeah, the making of noise and the things you're supposed to throw and all of that. It's just like a little too much for me. I went to a screening um, many years ago in um, San Francisco when um, they were trying to do that to Black Swan. Like, oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) there was the studio like decided like, oh, we're this movie isn't really succeeding as just like what it is. So we're going to hire drag queens to go to screenings and try to (laughs) enforce like this participatory, like, you know, call and response thing. And, oh, gosh, it was just so forced and, like, the most deeply uncomfortable thing I've ever been to. Were the queens particularly, like, obsessed with the film? I feel like you can't pull something like that off unless you have true fanatics, you know, hosting it. Yeah. Or... Uh, well, I think that's that's maybe it, is, like, they were hired. And, like, they were great. Like, I think it was Heclina and one or two others and, you know, fantastic hosts. But it was certainly not an organic process. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like those kinds of things happen organically and you can't force. I think 
there's I think there's no way of knowing what's going to end up being a cult classic, and there's certainly no way to force a cult mm-hmm. a cult classic. I don't think. I think that you just have to like you have to make what you make, and then you know it becomes the zeitgeist or it doesn't. You know, right? Um, yeah, I feel the same. Like about um, uh, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or yeah. uh, Willy Wonka and the Fa- yeah. Chocolate Factory. Um, you know that who knows what they imagined that movie would be, but the level of um, weirdness and fanaticism amongst uh, its followers is, yeah. uh, you know, just really delightful. I relate. So I have a. I think maybe other people can relate to this, but the only song in the original that I really couldn't stand was "Cheer Up, Charlie." That whole part. Where do you remember that part where the mom is like she's in working her laundry job and she's got all the like the big wooden pots of water boiling and she's like you know stirring her big cauldron of clothes and charlie comes by to visit and says well they found the last golden ticket i guess that's it and then he like walks home all mopey it's like it's like this it's like the darkest slowest part of the of the film i always would fast forward through that part i couldn't handle it as an adult i appreciate it more but as a kid i was like what is this nonsense it's so boring let's get to the oompa loompas you know (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't even have remembered that's in the movie if you hadn't mentioned it. Yeah, I mean, now I think when I watch it, I think it's like this really sweet moment. But at the time, it was just like, it felt like it lasted a half an hour. It felt yeah, it felt eternal. And then the part where they were in the boat at, at in the factory, um, and they went through the tunnel, um, and they showed the screen of all like the close-up mm-hmm. faces and all the bugs and like all those creepy things, that would terrify me when i was a kid that is a movie of great extremes totally um, yes that yeah. that boat that psychedelic um oh it's so wild <laughs> yeah yeah it feels like something from a john waters movie all of a sudden yeah like well and also because it's preceded by them going into this magical land which i was always like god i wish that was like a real place i could go and you can like you can you know eat whipped cream out of the mushrooms and all this stuff but i'm like they were all tripping they were eating psychedelic mushrooms in this like wild chocolate factory and then they got on this boat and they were all like peeking when they're on the boat and yeah it was it was now when i watch it i'm like oh these people were just on a lot of drugs (laughs) (laughs) right is there like you mentioned like quite a variety of stuff so there's like sound of music and damn yankees Charlie and the, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Um, and then there was, oh, and Fiddler on the Roof, which I yeah. <laughs> like love the idea of like a small child being like, yes, I, I love this Zero Mostel film. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And actually there was like this dinner theater that we went to when I was a kid. It was actually for my grandparents' anniversary. It's funny that they, they surprised me and my brother and it was their anniversary, but we went to this dinner theater um, and they were doing like a local sort of um, revival of Fiddler on the Roof, but that was, I it, it stuck out to me because I think that was one of the first plays I had ever seen in person. That was the only the first time I'd ever seen like a live play, and I was in the theater, mm. and there was like an intermission and all of that. And I remember that just being really exciting, and then it just kind of stuck with me, you know. Did you have any temptation to appear in musicals or to perform? I did when I was younger, and then that got squashed um, pretty quickly when I was around other children who were very mean and started to realize that I was not like a lot of other kids. <laughs> what was? Can, can you tell me about that, like that that realization? Yeah, I mean, I was in. You know, you always have to do like presentations, and there's like maybe the occasional skit you'd have to do in class and stuff like that. And um, I always really enjoyed it, um, and then. 
I think it was like, I want to say I was maybe like third or fourth grade where I started to become more aware that like maybe my personality was not like other kids or my, you know, my temperament. I don't know what it was really. I don't know what kids pick up on. Like I didn't have any clue I was queer. I didn't know what that was. And I don't think any of the other kids in my, I don't think any of the other kids had any idea of that either, but it definitely, there definitely was like a turning point where I, preferred to kind of fade into the background instead of being more more prominently placed. Mm. So, yeah, I just and like public speaking was always really hard for me. I feel like I'm way better at it now. Um but at the time I was there was like no way I would get in front of an audience and do anything. It's funny, you know, the things that are not really consciously you know, said like, you know, it's, I think it's seldom that people like hear something that's really on the nose. Like you're not like the other kids, right? but you know, somehow like children are so adept at picking up on, um, difference, even, even without like having the words to talk about it. Oh yeah. That, that thing of like how, you know, you, you see like the, the, you know, the girl's aisle at the toy store is all pink and the boys is all blue. And like, you know, kids are just like trained to like internalize this stuff from such an early age. Oh yeah. I mean, like you see these gender reveal parties that are like blowing up houses and stuff. It's like, people are wild. I feel like that's a really intense new phenomenon. I can't imagine they had like, I mean, I'm sure people would like get excited at a baby shower. Like if they found out the sex of the baby, but like these gender reveal parties just seem really over the top. Um, you know, yeah, like I get the urge for like having a spectacle and making a big scene, but, uh, of, of, of all things for it to be about it, the, the gender of a, a unborn baby is. Like, well, and it's also a uh, mis it's also a misnomer because it's not the gender of the baby. It's the sex of the exactly. baby. Right. And it's like, you, you haven't met your baby yet. Your baby doesn't have like self-awareness. So it actually doesn't have an idea of what its gender is and neither do you. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and calling it a sex reveal party would both be deeply uncomfortable, I think, but also rightfully uncomfortable. Well, and also it might it might attract a different kind of crowd <laughs> right. than they were t- intending, perhaps. But you could so call you it mentioned... a, you could call it like a biological sex reveal party. But exactly. Even, but even that you don't really know because there's all kinds of people with intersex conditions and different things that you just like. How about you just have like a an old fashioned baby shower where you're just like, right. yay, it's going to be healthy. Uh, right. Give me some onesies in a baby bottle. Right, right. A, like a baby party. Can we yeah. just like have that? Yeah. You mentioned um, gr- that you were in Austin when you saw um, Rocky Horror. Was, is that where you grew up? No, I actually grew up. Uh, my grandfather worked for the State Department and I actually grew up in a suburb of D.C. Um, in Fairfax County, Virginia. Um, so we were about five, we were like a five minute drive or so, uh, to DC, like right across the river, Potomac river. And, um, yeah, so I had access to a lot of really cool stuff. I had access to the Smithsonian museum system, which is incredible. So all of my field, I feel very spoiled really. Cause all of my field trips growing up were we'd go to the Smithsonian. So we'd, we'd be at the natural history museum or we'd be at the air and space museum or the national gallery or, you know, it was we went on some really cool field trips. Um, we got to go to Baltimore to go to the aquarium and like all kinds of stuff. So, actually, the very first live performance I ever remember seeing, um, it didn't feel as intimate as Fiddler on the Roof, but I was 
I was much younger and we took a school field trip to the Kennedy Center and they were doing a um they were doing the Princess and the Pea at the Kennedy Center and that was like my first time in the Kennedy Center and seeing like a real sort of like Broadway production kind of thing and it was pretty cool. Yeah, I would never want to live in DC, but in terms of like growing up there when I did in the, you know, 80s and 90s, it was it was a great place to be a kid and just in terms of access to all these like really remarkable free things that our government that's set up, you know, that we're endowed mm. with, which is pretty cool. So, and you had, uh, you know, it sounds like you were simultaneously, you know, being just outside DC in Virginia, I would imagine it would, would be a place that would be kind of conservative, but also like you're so close to a major city that there's something kind of urbane about being close to a major city. Well, people who live in Virginia are very particular about how they describe living in Virginia. So for instance, if I met someone who was from, let's say, Richmond or Fredericksburg, I would say that I'm from Northern Virginia. Um, so if you meet somebody who's in Virginia, you have these different like ways of describing where you're from um, because Virginia is so different. So I would say right outside of D.C., and then sort of we call it the D.C. metropolitan area, which also encompasses a pretty good chunk of uh, Maryland as well. And it's kind of all the same, you know, like we watch the same news and same papers and have the same issues and all that. So it's very similar. Everybody's parents, you know, work in D.C. in some capacity. So there's a lot of like latchkey kids and and, you know, everyone gets stuck on the beltway in traffic, yada, yada. But yeah, so. I always would say, you know, we're from Northern Virginia. And then if we're traveling outside of Virginia, you just say Virginia. Or for us, we would just say we're from D.C. because it's the easiest. People know where that is, you know. Was that something you had like, um, I don't know, was there a certain amount of pride in being from, you know, or establishing like either what kind of Virginian you are or that you're from D.C.? I grew up in a family that are, they're, yeah, elitist. So my... I was raised, you know, my grandfather um, was had his PhD and was a professor in uh, the business graduate school at NYU, worked for the State Department. My uncle has like two business degrees. So like I come from a family of teachers and professors. I come from a family of where education is super important. Um, and so I was always kind of brought up a little bit snobby, uh, thinking that like we were the educated elite and the people that, you know, sounded Southern and my whole family's from Brooklyn. They're all from, you know, New, New Jersey and Brooklyn and, you know, sort of New York, New Jersey region. And there's always been this sort of like, we're better than people in the South kind of attitude that kind of permeated my upbringing. So yeah, it was really very much a thing where we would get offended, especially this would happen all the time, especially if You'd say, yeah, I'm from Virginia. And people would say, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. He's from West Virginia. And you'd go, no, 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 no. Like people in Virginia don't want to be associated with people in West Virginia, two different states. And West Virginia has a really bad rap for being, you know, hillbillies and like really poor people and dumb people and all of that. So there's like growing up, there was always these sort of like there was always this coded speech for what you were really saying, which was like, we're classist. We're smarter than you you're dumb, you're Southern, you're this, you're that. We're from Northern Virginia, you know? So that was always kind of like imbued in this speech that on the surface seemed very like, oh, it's just, ge it's just geography, but like geography is laden with that kind of stuff, you know? Sure, sure. There, there's a construct going on there. 
Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. And you know, when I was a kid, it was, you know, it was, it was, we had pride and where we were from. And now as I've, I've, I've had some distance, I'm like, oh yeah, we were assholes. <laughs> you know, like I have so I have so many friends who grew up in the deep South who are brilliant, who never went to sort of like, who never had formalized, uh, formalized, uh, higher education who can run circles around me and, in, in, in the ways that they're able to like, you know, write and compose thought and, you know, so it's like as an, as an adult and having some separation from that and then reflecting back on it, I'm like, yeah, like kids say dumb stuff. And I was obviously regurgitating what I was taught, you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, well, you know, it's a tough lesson that being elitist isn't the same thing as being elite. Right. Yeah. It's something that, um, you know, similarly, um, my family had put a very high premium on education and like being classy quote-unquote classy whatever right. that really yep. means yeah um and i think there was something that gave me a lot of comfort when i was young um because i also felt like i was very separate and distant from other kids my age yeah and it kind of takes the sting out of being an outsider to kind of do the the sour grapes trick of like well i'm i'm better than them anyway yeah well i would always say like well i just am too smart for people my own age mm-hmm. you know and that was and maybe maybe it was not intellect it was maybe maturity and that's what i was maybe picking up on but at the mm-hmm. time i just i attributed it to oh i had a higher intellect than my peers did you plan to like what was your, what was your like educational trajectory coming out of you know like your teens and into young adulthood so it was interesting so i'm a i'm a trans person so i was you know raised and socialized as female for the first 20 well probably like 19 or so years of my life, I was visibly queer and was read, you know, by most people as a queer female from the age of probably 15 until I was like 25 or 26. So my socialization has been interesting over the years. That's why I was saying like kids would pick up on me being different than other sort of girls my age. Um, And I got called a boy and made fun of a lot. And I never understood what they were picking up on because as far as I was concerned, I was just doing the same stuff that everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. Wearing the same clothes to try to fit in and all of that. And sort of I would get, you know, people could kind of smell it on me, I guess. I don't know. We moved in with my grandparents when I was two and a half or three. My parents split up and... So we don't have any contact with our mother, and I haven't had any contact with her since I was probably around that age. Um, So my grandparents were really my parents. My dad was there, but he was young, and he has some – I mean, he wasn't that young. He was like 25. But he has some issues with being a responsible adult. So my grandparents really were the ones teaching us and guiding us and keeping us, I don't know, well taken care of and fed and – teaching us lessons on how to be productive adults. Uh, my grandfather died in 94, or I guess 95, technically. Uh, he died February of 95. And and then our family kind of fell apart. And that was right around when I was 11, 12 years old. So right around that tender age where kids can go one of two ways. Either they stay going to school and they kind of stick to the straight and narrow and you know they're are planning for their future or they start getting into bad stuff. And I kind of started acting out and getting into bad stuff. And that just kind of progressed until I left home when I was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've actually been on my own since I was 15. I moved to Austin uh, 
when I was 15, like right before my 16th birthday. That sounds like it must have been extremely challenging. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I had I had to make a tough decision. I really, my goal was to stay in school when I moved. But because I had been skipping school so much when I was a freshman in high school, when I tried to transfer and take like, I wanted to take half a day so that I could also work because I needed to work. The school said, well, you don't have enough credits. This was in Austin. Um, you don't have enough credits to be considered for taking half time. So you have to go to school full time or not at all. And I was like, that seems dumb. Okay, I guess not at all because I have to work, you know. So I was actually kind of forced into dropping out when I was 15 so that I could work full time at Pizza Hut. Um, so, so yeah, so I dropped out when I was 15 and then I, uh, you know, education was always still a priority for me. So I, I, you know, would read everything I could and would go to lectures and, you know, consumed live performance, like it was going out of style and, um, you know, would watch tons of documentaries and PBS and watch the news and read the paper and, you know, anything I could, you know, I've always had this really like intense thirst for, knowledge and curiosity about people in the world. And, um, and then when I was 17, I took my GED. So I got my GED and then decided I wanted to try to take some classes at the community college in Austin. So I enrolled and I didn't know, like I never went to high school really. So like the last grade I completed was eighth grade and making that transition from being on my own and being self-supporting and not having that structure of like, of going to school every day and not knowing what it's like to work and go to school. And I was 18. Uh, it didn't really work too well. And I dropped out kind of halfway through the quarter and kind of was feeling really down on myself. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able, I don't know if I'm cut out for this college life. You know, I thought, mm. you know, I thought it was, I thought it was something about me and my abilities versus that school really is, especially higher ed. It really is about uh, developing that skill set. You know, there are people who who just need time to learn how to balance work and school, and who need to learn how to skim when they're reading instead of reading every line. Like you really learn a lot of skills by going to college. And I didn't realize that. I thought it was like a reflection of how smart I was, or you know, I was kind of getting hung up on that. And then when I moved to I moved to uh, Seattle when I was nineteen. What made you make that move? Uh, I had nowhere else to go, really. And I'd always wanted to go to the Northwest and for a few reasons. One, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with it because of the whole grunge thing and all the music that I loved and art that I loved that came out of the region. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was beautiful. I had never been. And so it was very appealing to me to be as far away as I could possibly be from where I was from while still, you know, in the, the lower 48 states. And so that would have been like late 90s? No, this was, I moved here, when did I move here? I moved here, I'm 36 now, I moved here when I was 19, so I think it was like 2000, what is that, math, 2003? Sure, that sounds, I think that sounds I, not exactly wrong, yeah, that sounds yeah, right. Yeah, I think I moved here 2003, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I really just had nowhere to go, and my one friend who was who had become like family to me in in um, Austin? Um, he and I had decided to move up here together. To we just wanted a change from where we were living, and and I had nothing to lose. You know, I had all my belongings fit into four bags. I got on a Greyhound bus and uh, three and a half days on the Greyhound bus, and I arrived actually in Seattle on April Fool's Day on two thousand in two thousand three. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then things when I got here just really clicked for me. And it's the first place that I've ever really felt like it's, it's home. What were the things that clicked? I found a really awesome group of queer people. I was introduced to the concept of what it means to be trans, which I had met a trans person in Austin um, right before I moved. And I had no idea that there were like, not just that one person, but there was like this whole community of people that uh, felt similarly to me and were able to like live their lives openly and fully and, you know, have healthy relationships and jobs and housing and really tight friendships that were like family units. So those were the biggest things like meeting like-minded people and, and yeah, everything. I mean, I was able to get an apartment kind of right away with no money and no savings. The woman, I think, just thought I looked trustworthy and let me sign a lease before I even really had a job. So that really saved my butt. And um, mm-hmm. and I made good on it. You know, I lived in that apartment for two years and never missed a rent payment, you know. Um, yeah, and then when I was 24, 23 or 24, I started taking classes at Seattle Central. Um, and I started with a math class. I had to start at the very basic, like, remedial math where you're learning about the the place value on a number line and you're learning addition and subtraction and long division like I started from the from just the basics you know and um and I just kind of took my time and built up my confidence that I could work and go to school and uh be successful at that and I just really enjoyed it and I wasn't for the first time ever I was going to school because I wanted to and I wasn't going because I wasn't going for approval. I wasn't going, you know, to get my family to love me. I was going because it felt good to use my brain and it felt good to be proud of myself and to, you know, to have this have this challenge and be able to meet the challenge and exceed it, you know? I imagine having a community of queer people and particularly um, trans people who are living successful lives, that must have had a big impact as well. Oh, it totally did. Yeah. I mean, it really did. I had a couple of older friends um, who I knew from Austin um, who were really supportive and instrumental and like, and kind of parenting me really, um, helping me, you know, make doctor's appointments and went with me to get my name legally changed and, you know, kind of, they would let me bounce dumb ideas off of them and they would talk me out of it, you know, like they really were like parents to me. So it was, it was, I was getting the things that I had needed for a long time, but had never been able to access from my blood family. So it was really, Mm. it was really healing in a lot of ways, you know. That is something that really um, impresses me about Seattle. You know, like everyone who lands here is warned, like, watch out for the Seattle freeze. Oh, yeah. And yet it is the most compassionate city I've ever lived in. Same. I mean, I will say this, you know, it's not even so much the Seattle freeze as it's um, people hibernate nine months out of the year because (laughs) this city has really shitty weather. So it's like, you know, you got to meet your people in the summer, the spring and summer, and then you find your hiber mate and you hunker down for the winter. And then, you know, come spring or summer, everyone's back out like mingling and trying to make friends, you know. So it took me, I moved here at a good time because I moved here in April. So I had that first summer to really go out and meet people. And Capitol Hill was a way different place. And I knew everyone on the Hill. I had friends that worked in every bar or restaurant, you know, and we would all see each other out at different events and things or go to house parties or it definitely had a different feel than it does now. 
um, I don't know that people are having that same experience if they move to Seattle today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The community is, I mean, you know, I still have an experience where like, you know, the guy who cuts my hair works down the street for me, but I also see him when I go out to the bars and, yeah. you know, I, I literally, we ran into each other like two or three days ago, just like walking to the grocery store. You've got like Capitol Hill faces that you see. Yeah. I used to actually, if I had to go from point A to point B, I used to have to go, I would take back streets if I was in a hurry. Like I'd go on Harvard or something. If I was in a hurry, I'd avoid Broadway because I'm like, I don't have time to run into like 10 people that I know. <laughs> sure. You know, and I, and I really, I really enjoyed it. And it, it was the first time I ever felt like, oh, I live in like Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Like I know everyone here. I know my neighbors. I know what they do for a living. Like I know all their names. I'm invested in their lives. And you know, and to a degree they're invested in mine. And, you know, that was, that was really, it was a great experience. I feel really lucky to have moved to Seattle when I did, you know, to have experienced Capitol Hill. And it really, you know, 17 years ago, that was kind of, that was starting to be kind of the, towards the end of what Capitol Hill used to be like in the eighties and nineties for people, you know? So I didn't even get to see it when it was in its true heyday. But I heard lots of cool stories working with the people at Vivace where I worked for 10 years. You know, they were really old school Capitol Hill. And, you know, and I think it really shifted when Pride moved downtown. Mm. That was that was like the big shift for me where it stopped. It stopped feeling, I don't know, that same kind of like neighborhood, cozy, um, sort of insular, protected enclave, you know, when when Pride moved off the hill. Well, yeah, I think enclave is is the right word for it because there's sort of um, you know, a protection of you know, and I, this is a question that comes up in there's a scene in Priscilla Queen of the Desert where they talk about this, about you know we we put up those walls, you know, sometimes they don't actually exist around our neighborhoods, um, and a little bit is to protect us from them, and a little bit is them protect themselves from us. Yeah. Um. And, but you know at the end of the day, it's just nice to know the people around you and to feel a level of uh, safety and support. So yeah, safety and support and familiarity, I think is, is a thing that, especially living in the city, you know, like I've never had the desire to live in a rural town like that. Nothing actually sounds more depressing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I have a few friends who love that life and good for them. I'm happy they found their place, but I just, I could do it for about a day before I just go completely nuts. Like I love being around energy and people and the hustle and bustle and being able to just kind of wander around and, and see things and watch people and not in like a creepy way, but you know, but yeah, it it is a thing where I just inherently feel safer if I see the same faces over and over again. And you know, the names of the people around you, you just take a more, like, there's just more of an interest in like, okay, for instance, the people moving into the neighborhood now, they're moving here because of, of work at Amazon or a company that is affiliated with Amazon. So they're moving here for tech work. And the tenure, especially at Amazon, because there's been some reports about it, but the tenure at Amazon is roughly a year, I think, is average. So oh, these, wow. I didn't know that. It's pretty bad. So it depends on what your job is. But yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty quick turnaround. But people come here because it's crazy good money. They get that Amazon stamp on their resume and then they can kind of go where they really want to go, right? They get the experience Mm -hmm. at Amazon and then they can use that to kind of leverage and get a job that they actually want to do somewhere else. So they're transient. So that's why you see all these apartments coming in and that's why people aren't making too much of a fuss about it because that's all they want because they're not invested in this neighborhood. 
they don't want to stay here. They're not invested in making long lasting friendships or they don't have a sense of ownership over the neighborhood. Um, they come here to get shit faced and puke all over the sidewalks and like gay bash people. It's like the whole tone of the neighborhood has shifted. And I started actually feeling unsafe here when I stopped recognizing people walking down Broadway, you know, Mm. I, I can go a week without running into somebody that I know. It's funny that I ran into you the other day because that never happens to me anymore. Yeah, I suppose that's true. You know, I've only been here about five years and, you know, I've had that experience somewhat, but usually I have to like seek it out. Like I have to go to CC's on a particular night or, you know, there's, I'm going to somebody, you know, tonight I'm going to creme work and I know I'm going to see people I know at creme work. Yeah, for sure. But I'm going to see them rather than like, Hey, you just leave your house and see whoever. And you just run into people. Yeah. You know, and I get, you know, things change, times change, neighborhoods are always shifting and changing. A neighborhood is not, you know, a static thing. It's, it's an org, it's a living organism, right? People are always coming and going. And I get that. But I did go through like a pretty significant mourning process, you know, but I am still really glad I had that experience and that I was able to, you know, have made, I was able to have made this my home for so long. Um, It's officially the longest I've lived anywhere. Well, and I think this is where you really developed your career and, you know, professionally, like, tell me about how you got into, like, when did physical fitness become a part of your life? So I, again, being raised by depression era you know, older folks who had nothing really handed to them, um, you know, come from pretty poor families. And they really instilled at a very young age that exercise and movement should be a part of your daily life. And it's always important. And my grandmother would always say, if you don't use it, you lose it. And she would say that about your brain. So if you're not reading and, you know, studying, you're going to forget and you're going to get dumb, basically. And if same thing with your muscles, if you don't exercise regularly, you're going to become frail and weak and all that. So that was always instilled in me at a very young age. And we were a really active family. So I played soccer from I think the first time I was on a team was I I was in kindergarten. Um, And then I played sports all throughout uh, until I left school. So I've always loved being active. I've always been really active. And then when I moved to Seattle, I biked everywhere for transportation and walked everywhere, but I wasn't going to the gym. I didn't have a specific kind of fitness practice in a gym. I hadn't started lifting weights or anything. And then I actually started getting into it when I was going through a really intense period of depression, kind of when I was going through sort of 18, 19, 20, like the first time I was really going to therapy because I wanted to, because I wanted to kind of unpack a lot of my childhood and try to figure out what was going on with my gender and my sexuality. And I didn't want to be on medication for depression and anxiety, but I had a lot of anxiety and I was really depressed. So I tried to do pretty much every holistic thing I could do to avoid being put on medication because I had been put on, you know, I, I was, I was 11 and 12 during the time where everyone was getting prescribed uh, Prozac. And so I was put on all kinds of stuff when I was showing the, you know, the littlest signs of being depressed after my granddad died. So I was very anti-medication. And yeah, so exercise, I had read about it and how it helps kind of release endorphins and it can help you sleep better and it can help, you know, relieve stress and all that. And so I started, um, I worked at this record store And we could check things out, like, you know, kind of like you're at the library. Um, 
and so I I would check out these uh, you know at home workout videos of all different kinds of of activities, and I would just do these little workouts at, at home in my apartment, um, and I would do a different one every day, and so and I just felt great, like it really did help. It helped my mood, it helped my energy levels, it helped me sleep better, um, and so then I you know I I didn't really think about that being a viable career. Um, that just seemed to me like it would be like a hobby, um, or something that I would just do for myself or occasionally like with a friend or two. Um, and then, you know, I was in school, I finished my associates at Seattle central and I transferred to Seattle U to get my bachelor's. And then I went from there straight into graduate school for public health. And, um, when I was, I moved to Philly for public health school. And when I was in school, I was so depressed. I really missed being in Seattle. I hated the program I was in. I did not like being back on the East Coast. I did not make any friends in my program. The statistics on their website said the kids, you know, the average age was around 25. And I swear everyone in my cohort was probably, you know, barely 20. Mm -hmm. Um, So it felt like high school 2.0, you know. So I was just really unhappy and the program was also not very interesting or demanding. So I had large chunks of time with nothing to do. And so I got really into uh, weightlifting and studying the body and studying exercise science essentially on my own. Um, and I would spend hours and hours on at the gym, just not like going at it really hard, but I would spend hours and hours experimenting with different movements and different kinds of lifting and you know, reading every book that I could find and looking up videos on YouTube. And I really just started going down this hole of like, of of the fitness world. And, you know, and I quickly found what wasn't represented, which were queer and trans people and fat people and disabled people. And um, I kind of had this idea in the back of my mind, like, oh, it'd be really cool to do a, have like a practice where I work with people who don't typically feel like they belong in a gym. Um, but at the time I was like, you know, my, I think my family was kind of speaking through me and saying like, that's not a, that's not a reputable career. You know, that's like, that's not something that like we do, you know, that's like having a working at McDonald's or something. That's not like a very like prestigious job, you know? Mm. And so I never considered it as like an option. And then I left my program, moved back to Seattle And I was actually at the gym with my best friend and I was like showing him how to do some stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't know what to do now. I like dropped out of school and maybe I'll apply to a different grad program. I don't really know. Like, I don't really want to take on all this debt. Doesn't seem worth it to me. And he was like, well, while you're figuring it out, you should just get certified and be a trainer. You're really good at it. And I was like, huh. And I kind of trust anything he tells me because he just knows me really well. And, you know, we've been friends for 15 years and And so I kind of, that night I looked into it and looked at a few different options for getting certified and what that would mean. And, uh, and then I started studying and I did it. Um, and I kind of haven't looked back. It sort of encompasses everything that I wanted to do with graduate school. So I love working directly with people. I love teaching. I love working with people on, you know, helping them live more independently and feel better in their bodies. And um, it's kind of funny how I just kind of kind of happened on this this thing that I'm really passionate about that I never would have imagined 10 years ago, you know? 
Yeah, that's it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, those things that are just like waiting for us to discover, and sometimes we really need somebody to point out, like, um, "Hey, you love this thing. Why aren't you doing this thing that you love?" Yeah, I guess part of me always thought that like career and work should be something that you like. It should feel like work. In my mind, I always was like. I'm not suffering for this thing, so hmm. I, I'm just taking the easy way out. You know, I think I've had that. I think I've had that kind of embedded in my brain from how I was raised. You know, like it's called work for a reason, like that idea. You know, um, but you really can do something that you love, that you're passionate about, and that is also a really valuable service to other people. You know, like I feel if I'm having a shitty day and I'm exhausted and I go and I have a session with a client, I always feel better when I leave that session. I always feel better. There's never been a day where I have not felt more complete as a person when I'm, when I'm training someone. So that's how I know I'm doing something that I should be doing, you know? And I honestly think that that's what makes me a, a good trainer is that I'm doing it because I want to do it. I'm not doing it to get rich. And I, you know, I would do it if I could just, you know, if the if I could get paid by the state, like part of like a national health plan or something, and anybody could come see me, then that would be enough for me. You know, like I actually hate having to charge people, um, because it's just something I enjoy doing so much. So yeah. Well, that's I mean that's where you want to be, and it sounds like um, it's a really different approach to um, enjoying something that, that, that um, contrasts with. Um, the feeling you had when you were younger that you mentioned of, um, oh, I like doing this thing. I like um, these musicals and I like performing, but also suddenly people are noticing that I'm doing it differently and it's just too painful to have the attention on me. Yeah. Uh, now it seems like you've, you've really leaned into, um, here's, my, here's my superpower. It's, it's kind of the only place where I'm, I'm more willing to let my guard down and try something new. I'm working on that in my personal life. But when I'm at the gym, if I have a coach who actually lives in Nashville and we do like distance coaching and he writes programming for me and we check in on the phone and stuff and he'll program something for me to do. And I've been working a lot with kettlebells. So it'll be maybe a new, a new combination of movements with a kettlebell that I've not tried before or I'm notoriously, I'm not the most agile person, so I, I kind of trip up over my feet a lot if there's any kind of quick foot action happening. Like, if you think like doing like a boxer shuffle, like the footwork that boxers do, anything like that, it takes me a little longer to get. I'm not like a natural dancer person. Um, hmm. But when I'm in the gym, I don't even think about that. Like, I don't care. I don't care if I look stupid. I don't care if I am not doing it right. I don't care if I'm not, you know if I'm try and try every day and I never improve at the thing that I am supposed to be doing, you know, it just doesn't bother me when I'm in the gym in, in the same way that it would probably bother me if I were at a club on a dance floor, I would be terrified that people were looking at me and I wasn't dancing well, you know? Right. So it's just interesting that that's the space that I've kind of created where I really just feel like I'm in my body and people can look at me or not. And I just, I don't really care. It's liberating. It feels very liberating. Well, on the topic of um, trying new things, uh, you just announced that you're going to be uh, trying something very new uh, in the next few weeks or months. Yeah. So, yeah, I just actually uh, this week 
um, am ending my practice in Seattle um, because my partner, uh, Ben, Ben de la Creme, and I have decided to uh, relocate at least half time in LA. I will be, my main base will be in LA. I, my situation's a little bit more complicated because I have cats and a dog and we'll be cohabitating, but uh, Ben will still have productions in Seattle and stuff. So he'll be up, still be in Seattle quite a bit. But yeah, we're moving to LA. After 17 years of me being in Seattle, I just really feel ready to move on. I'm ready for some sunshine um, year round, which I'm very excited for. And um, I'm ready to kind of take the plunge and set up a practice down there and um, keep doing my work with Ben that I've been doing. And, you know, we'll be living together for the first time and getting married in the next year, you know, year or two. And uh, yeah, so lots of really fun, like cool adventures on the horizon. Yeah, that's um, a lot of changes. And they're all super exciting. Like you're really like, I don't know, actualizing the stuff that you're like, I, I really want to do that. So I'm gonna. Yeah. Well, it also helps having a partner that he's my adventure buddy, you know, like, I feel like we'll be okay wherever we go. It sounds so cheesy, but it's true. It's like, as long as we're together, you know, we'll be okay. And you know, neither one of us think that LA is going to be our forever place, but we're going to go and we're going to give it a shot. And, you know, if we end up not liking it, then we'll, we'll figure out what's next. You know, like my best friend lives down there and we haven't lived in the same city for, uh, seven years. And we talk every day and we make a point to visit each other every six months or so. So we've really kept in pretty close contact for having not lived in the same state for a very long time, but I'm really excited to be able to just like have a day off and call him up and say, Hey, what are you doing? Do you want to go do this thing? And you know, it doesn't have to be this thing we plan months in advance. And, um, yeah, so I'm excited to have, you know, my best friend back in, in daily rotation and, um, and I'm, my dog hates the rain, so I'm sure she's (laughs) going to be really happy to be able to go outside and have Mm. it be nice weather all the time. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, everything a new city has to offer, you know, new restaurants and meeting new, making new friends. And there's so much happening in LA in terms of queer art and performance. So I'm really excited to be able to go down there and kind of become immersed in that world as well. So I'm, yeah. And we're, so we're, we're leaving for, for a tour on Thanksgiving and then we'll be in and out of Seattle uh, through January and February. And then I will probably start staying in LA um, end of February, beginning of March. Um, and we'll have all of our stuff kind of down there. Ben's keeping his apartment up here Mm -hmm. since he'll be going back and forth quite a bit. Um, but I will, I probably won't come up nearly as often as he will. Well, and, um, you'll be in a place where not like Seattle's like out in the middle of nowhere, but you're going to be in a place with a lot of like, as you said, art and culture. And it seems like you're going to have a lot of opportunities there if you want to, to really dive into the kind of stuff that you mentioned um, at the start of our conversation, like the musicals and the, you know, there's a, there's the LA opera does like amazing stuff. Yeah. Uh, So you're going to have a lot of choices if you want to just like experience the kind of entertainment that, that you always loved. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I know the Pasadena Playhouse is a really mm. a really great place. They just had little shop of horrors up there. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of like really great stuff happening. You know, some of my favorite comedians um have like weekly shows at Dynasty Typewriter and you know, it's just people there's just pop-up events happening all the time and really great 
multimedia kinds of performance and yeah, I mean, I'm just really excited. Um, my best friend's partner has been in in LA for, oh God, maybe eight or maybe 10 years at this point. And she loves to plan and she always has sort of her finger on the pulse. You know, she always knows what's going on at what gallery and what venue. And so I'm, I'm excited to just kind of let her plan some nights and just kind of go around with her. Um, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it'll be really fun. And, you know, we're one of the things that we're, one of our goals, Ben and I, we're, we're trying to, you know, be better about having some work-life balance. I think that he and I are both a bit, we're workaholics a little bit. And so mm-hmm. uh, one of our goals, we'll have a car. It'll be my first time having a car since I was 18 years old. So wow. okay. yeah, so we're going to try to only do one car because I, I don't like that being in a car all the time lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, but with a car, we're really excited because it opens up that whole region. So, you know, we can go explore new towns on take days off or little weekend trips here and there and, um, try to have, try to have some more downtime for, you know, enjoying this life that we've, you know, built together. So, so yeah, we're really looking forward to that. We've been talking about some trips we want to take and, um, I really want to take him to Palm Springs when it's not. January and 30 degrees. <laughs> so sure. that'll be one of our first trips. He doesn't believe me that it's a great place to be. So there's, there's a lot to love. I, I will say like Palm Springs has like such a narrow window of like, Oh my God, it's freezing. And like, Oh my God, I'm dying. It's too hot. Yeah. But if you could, if you could nail that like little window, if you can get in there. Yeah. I think the key is like maybe October, November mm-hmm. is maybe not October, November, December. I don't know. I've been in August and I've been in September and September. It was perfect. Yeah. It was like hot during the day. It got cooler at night. Um, it was hot enough in the daytime that you could swim and have fun, you know, out doing like outdoorsy stuff, but not so hot that you wanted that you thought you were going to die, you know. So I really, I, I really enjoy that, and I love heat too. I'm very excited about it. Okay, well, you're you're moving to the right place. I mean, I'm not into the fires, so that's one. <laughs> sure. That's definitely like giving me pause. I'm like, this is kind of scary, but we'll see. <laughs> you have a lot of opportunities there to like try a lot of stuff, and also, you know, avoid the fires. Yeah, I'm also really excited to live in a city that is a lot more diverse than Seattle. Seattle is oh, very gosh. Seattle's very diverse, but it's so segregated. There are there are pockets where different kinds of like ethnic groups live where it's not as homogenous as it is in like, let's say like LA where people, you know, you don't have just like, Oh, well all the, all the African American people live in the central district or all the immigrants live off Rainier or, you know, like you don't have as much of that in LA. Things are a little bit more integrated, which I'm excited about too. And I'm excited to like, try all the restaurants and all the food like you can have any kind of cuisine you you can imagine there which i'm excited about so well, i'm really excited for you and a little jealous of like all the exploring that you're going to be able to do well you just have to come down and visit us i suppose i'll have to <laughs> we'll bring uh, we'll bring queens of adventure down uh, yeah you should to, to do that so. yeah perfect we're planning on um, having a guest room so you should definitely come okay well i may take you up on that because uh yeah it's been a while since i visited uh and you're actually making me a little like against all odds nostalgic for los angeles well and that's the thing it's like uh, somebody said actually it was willem um, ben's really close with with the drag queen willem and she was actually saying one day i was like yeah ben doesn't really want to move to la and i've been wanting to move there for a couple of years now actually and ben was a really hard sell 
And Willem was like, well, nobody wants to move here. Like nobody wants to live here, but this is like where opportunity is. And this is where, you know, a lot of stuff is happening. So you come for all the stuff that's happening. You don't necessarily like come because it's like an awesome place to live. And I think along the way you can create sort of an awesome life down there. But I think that was kind of what Ben needed to hear to like be open to trying it out was like, he, you know, he doesn't have to love it. You just got to give it a chance, be open-minded, and then it might surprise them, you know? Well, and it sounds like creating an awesome life is something that I think both of you have some experience and success at doing at this point. Yeah, I think we're doing all right. (laughs) We're doing okay. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited for you. I can't wait to see, like, the adventures that that you have once you're down there. Yeah, and, you know, like I said, we'll get you down there and obviously keep in touch, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to... Um, not just seeing your adventures, but um, those times that you come back up to visit Seattle as well, of course. Definitely. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Gus for joining me. We talked a bit about his partner, the wonderful Ben de la Creme, who was my guest on Sewers of Paris episode 63 from June of 2016. My recommendation this week is to cast your podcatcher back to episode 63 or head over to sewersofparis.com and peruse the archives. I chatted with Dela, or really with Ben, the artist behind the character, between the first appearance on Drag Race and the captivating return on All Stars, and the interview provides some fascinating insights into both the performer and the persona. Our conversation ranges from inspirations like Bugs Bunny to Dante Alighieri, touching on proto-drag characters like Tina Angst, who was the furious alter ego of a performer struggling to find their voice, and we talked about the exhausting experience of shooting Drag Race, which Ben swore he'd never do again before hitting on a way that fit into his larger plans for his persona, his career, and his life. That's Sewers of Paris episode 63 from June of 2016. You can find it at sewersofparis.com. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to everyone supporting the Sewers of Paris on Patreon. Visit sewersofparis.com and click support the show on Patreon to join the folks who make the show possible, and also to check out the rewards for backers. Thanks also to everyone who's reviewed the Sewers of Paris on your podcast platform of choice. And remember, our next brunch time live stream is coming up on December 28th. There's a link on the Sewers of Paris Twitter feed. Please reach out, let me know what you think of the show on Twitter and Facebook, or at sewerspodcast at gmail.com. And by the way, if you like LGBTQ podcasting, you might enjoy my other show, Queens of Adventure, a comedy adventure podcast that stars drag queens playing Dungeons and Dragons. That's at queensofadventure.com. The theme song for the show is Parisian from filmmusic.io by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. And until next time, croissant. <laughs>